0: If you have a Bible this morning, let me invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 1. We are in our second sermon in the series through the book of Hebrews. And so if you missed last week, uh, I'll give you a five-minute review of that message. And you might ask yourself, if I can do a five-minute review, can I just preach a five-minute sermon? And the answer to that is no. Uh, I can't do that. Uh, So we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 today. And as we uh, as we approach this text, the big question is, does God speak? Does God speak? Does he reveal himself? Does he make himself known? You might say, uh, you know, Gibson, I've never heard God speak. I've never heard him say anything. Uh, And so that's a big question. It's a big question of uh, is God speaking? Does he reveal himself? Does he make himself known? And if he does make himself known, how does he make himself known? How does He speak? How does He reveal Himself? If we are supposed to be in this relationship with God, a relationship consists of communication. That's one of those uh, building blocks for relationship. And so if God speaks, how does He speak? And, and how do you hear from Him if you're not hearing from Him? And if you are hearing from Him, how do you hear more clearly Uh, You see people who say they hear God speak and what they hear God say uh, may or may not line up with how he's revealed himself in the Bible. Uh, It's a confusing topic. Uh, There is a book called, uh, written by Sarah Young. Yeah, Jesus Calling, thank you. I couldn't remember the name all of a sudden. But it's based on the fact that this woman went out. And practiced a, a habit, a spiritual habit, that was uh, made popular in the 1930s by a secular spiritist, spiritualist who would go out and just listen to messages. And this woman, Sarah Young, took this practice rooted in, in a spiritual philosophy that uh, wasn't, didn't have anything to do with uh, Christianity or the Bible, and she began to practice this and began to write down extra messages and would write those down. It's a very popular book. I'm sure to step on many toes uh, as I continue to talk this morning. But but it's a terrible practice, and it's a terrible book. I, I don't recommend it at all. As a matter of fact, I recommend that you throw the book away. Because if, if, if what was revealed to this woman has gone through so many, more than 25 revisions because what was revealed to her by Jesus didn't actually line up with what Jesus actually said, if it has to be changed over and over and over again with revisions to bring it back under, then the whole process, the whole idea that that going out and just listening to Jesus to get an extra message that's not included in our scripture is a terribly dangerous practice. So it gets us back to this point. Does God speak? And if He does speak, how does He speak? And how do we hear from Him? And how do we hear from Him in a way that's not dangerous? Uh, How do we hear from Him in a way that's not misleading, in a way that's that's true? You know, Jesus said, uh, I'm seeking worshipers who will worship me in what? Spirit and truth. With all your emotion, but also with all truth. Matt Chandler has this amazing illustration where he says, Uh, If if I were to to be overwhelmed with affection for my wife and I were to, to walk in and get on my knees in front of my wife and just tell her how much I love her and begin to express my emotions, and my affection for my wife in this heartfelt way with all my spirit. And I were to start to tell her, I don't know if it's your if it's your brown hair or your your brown eyes. I'm not sure if that's what I love about you. He said, would my wife receive it? Well, she wouldn't receive it because she has blonde hair and blue eyes, right? He's worshiping her in spirit, but not in what? Not in truth. Not in truth. And so why would we assume that God would receive our worship if it is not true of Him? If it's not the way He reveals Himself? And so the point we want to hear today is that God does speak and He does reveal Himself and it's our role to worship Him and to respond to the truth in which He's revealed Himself. Now, as we get into Hebrews 1, 1-4, it's an amazing passage. It really is an amazing passage. Uh, and so we want to get into it in just a second. But before we do that, let me just reset where we are in the book. Last week we described how we don't know who wrote this book. Uh, we don't know who the author is. It's definitely not Paul. At the beginning of every letter that Paul wrote, he wrote, I, Paul, you know, writing to this group of people. We, we have no introduction like that. Uh, we do have clues that this was written to a Hebrew community, a community of Hebrews, Jewish people living somewhere in the Roman Empire. And it doesn't say that this is to a church. It could just be to a group of Jewish people who are ethnically Jewish. And we know that in this exclusively Jewish community that this book is addressed to, that there are at least three audiences that are really clear in the book of Hebrews. And I revealed the secret to understanding Hebrews last week is understanding to whom he's addressing in that Hebrew audience. The first group that he is addressing in this book, primarily, are ethnic Jews who were living in a Greek-speaking community who had heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and given their life to Jesus. So these are Jewish Christians who have responded to the gospel by faith. They've experienced some persecution and some difficulty, and now they're being tempted to slide back into Judaism, to backslide. It's not too hard to believe, is it? That if you were to experience some sort of pressure or difficulty or struggle or discomfort in your life, that you would slide backward into uh, some sort of sin habit or some sort of former way of life. Uh, Proverbs 26, 11 says that like a dog that returns to its vomit, so is a fool who repeats his folly. That it is part of our human nature, right, to slide backward, that, to, that we would... Go backward into previous habits. Um, Peter wrote um, in Galatians chapter 2, he describes the situation. You remember the situation where Peter used to eat with the Gentiles and he used to be with everybody else. But when other Jews came into this community, verse 12 of Galatians 2 says, For certain men before James came, uh, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and he separated himself fearing the circumcision party. And all the other Jews had acted hypocritically along with them so that even Barnabas was led astray by this hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you are a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And so there was this situation in which Paul confronted Peter for sliding back into a Judaistic habit. We can see that here. We can see that in Scripture. You see it maybe in your own life if you're a believer that there is a tendency to, you know, if you hit too many potholes, your car will sort of turn on its own, right? At the end of the winter, it seems like I can let go of the wheel and it's just going to veer one way. Uh, and and our flesh is like that. Our sin flesh is like that. We can we can veer back into sinful, destructive habits. But the Spirit within us, Galatians five describes this putting off and putting on, putting on Christ and walking by the Spirit so that you won't gratify the desires of the sin nature. And this primary first group to whom the author of Hebrews is writing is describing Hebrew Christians who had experienced suffering and now were, were veering backward. Right, that's the first group he's writing to. The second group are Hebrew non-Christians who were intellectually convinced about who Jesus was. These were people who heard the news about Jesus. They, they liked Jesus. They were fans, right? Um, they thought He was a, a, an amazing teacher and an amazing miracle worker. They were intellectually convinced about His miracles. Um, they were probably even convinced that He died on the cross and then rose back to life on the third day. These were people that were in the community, heard the gospel, and said, Yes, I believe that but I'm not committed to Jesus. I'm not praying to Jesus. I'm not worshiping Jesus. I'm not following Jesus. I'm not standing up for Jesus. I'm not raising my hands in church and singing songs to Jesus. These are people who are not yet believers. They're not believers. They're just, in their mind, they say Jesus was a a great person. It might be the same way in which I understand that Abraham Lincoln was the sixth president. I'm just kidding, he's the 16th president. I'm just saying if you're awake. Just in the same way that I can intellectually understand that, it's different than me praying to Abe Lincoln, right? I'm not following Abe Lincoln. I'm not reading his writings and talking to him on a daily basis. In the same way, people would look at Jesus and say, I respect who he was, but I'm not following him. I'm not a Christ follower. These are non-believers, ethnic Jews who are intellectually convinced. That's the second group of people to whom this letter is addressed. The third group of people are Hebrew non-Christians who are in no way convinced. They just happen to connect with other ethnic Jews in that community. And they want to be around other people that are part of their culture. Now listen, we kind of get this. These are unbelievers. These people who are just culturally this. A few years ago, I went to Rome and was on a mission trip. And we were ministering to refugees from the Middle East who were fleeing from the war that was taking place in 2002, the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan. And so all these people were fleeing out of the Middle East, and they were going into Europe as fast as they could. And and Italy has the most shoreline, and it was easiest for them to get in. So they would go to Rome, and then they would just kind of be stuck there. Uh, And so we would minister to all these people. And and as we were, every day we would serve breakfast and lunch, and we would uh, play card games and, and talk to people from all over the Middle East. And, and one of the greatest realizations I had, I will never forget, I was playing volleyball under the Coliseum. There's a park, uh, and we, were, we had just finished lunch, and we were playing volleyball, and I was setting you know this guy from, uh, from Iran, and, uh, and he was setting a guy from Iraq, And then some guy from Afghanistan was spiking it on somebody's face from America. And and this was just kind of a surreal scene happening. And and as we celebrated a point, we all came together, me and these four guys. And we all just reveled for a moment at the fact that one of the guys, I think uh, the one from Iran said, we're supposed to be enemies. We're supposed to be enemies. And here we are in this sort of huddle, high-fiving and celebrating. It was an amazing moment. And as I learned from spending two weeks uh, in that setting and with those guys, I learned that many of them were culturally Muslim. They were culturally Muslim, but they weren't following Allah. They weren't praying five times a day, and they weren't. St- they were just culturally attached to this, in the same way that, that I am uh, from a, Catholic, a culturally Catholic family. Now, I was a, a confessing atheist. And yet I was a part of a Catholic culture. I didn't believe in Jesus. I would never stand up and say I believe in Jesus. I just, this was part of my culture. We get that. You can be culturally Baptist but not love Jesus. Right? You can be culturally Mennonite and have no affection for Jesus Christ. We understand that. That you can be culturally steeped in something that looks like faith but not personally have faith. That shouldn't be hard for any of us to understand, but this is who the author was writing to, people who were believers and two groups who weren't believers, one that was just culturally steeped, uh, the other that were somewhat convinced intellectually about Jesus but weren't following, and some who were followers of Jesus. That's the audience, and if you miss the group to whom he speaks, you miss the entire point of Hebrews. It's hard to navigate all those cultural nuances, all right? You still with me? All right, kids, no kids are asleep yet. I can see that, so that's good. We're doing well so far. Uh, So that's the audience, and so this text that we're getting to today, the author, in light of who these people are, he's going to do two things. He's going to warn them about falling away from Jesus, but he's also going to exalt Jesus and help people see how superior Jesus is. You might have got a note, a book of notes there, and there's a picture of Mount Everest right? The most superior mountain on the earth, right? Um, And Jesus is superior to all things was the idea behind the book of Hebrews, that there's nothing you could slide back into that is better than Jesus. There is no other way. There's nothing that will satisfy you like a relationship with Jesus will. And so in this first passage, let's read it together. Hebrews chapter one, verses one through four says this long ago, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Such an amazing passage. I wish I had a cool accent to read it in. It would just sound so much better. But this is one of those very clear passages. It's so clear. Um, You know, if the Bible is like a lake... And, and it, if at some points on that lake, you can see all the features. If the lake is clear, it's, it's glassy. And you can, if there's a clear spot, you can see all the features underneath the water. There are some passages in the Scripture that are like that. They're just ultra clear. You can see it written in beautiful language. You can see everything really clearly. It covers the scope of redemption. This is one of those passages. Think think about vivid, clear passages like John 1 1 through 5, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and all things were made through Him, and there wasn't anything that was made. That was made without him and in him was life and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. One of those great, clear passages. You think about John 3, 16, that God so loved the world. Kids, finish it. God so loved the world that. Yes, good job. Nice job that it's one of those very clear passages that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Think about Galatians 4 that uh, Charles read a few weeks ago that in the fullness of time God sent his son to redeem those who were under the law that we might be adopted as sons that God sent his spirit into our hearts by which we cry out Abba father think about Ephesians 2 you were dead in your trespasses but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us made us alive together in Christ by grace you have been saved through faith and not by works Think about Philippians 2, 5-11, through 11, or Colossians 1, 15-23, that He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Think about Romans 3, 21-26, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Isaiah 53 describes the suffering servant. In all these ways, there are these great, clear passages that clearly show who Jesus is and what He accomplished for us. Hebrews 1, 1-4 is like that passage. If you uh, are looking for a passage of Scripture to memorize this week, Hebrews 1, 1-4 is the passage. And we're not going to cover it all this week. We're going to break it up into two parts because there's a lot here. Uh, there are four contrasting ideas and seven ways that he presents Jesus as supreme. You can look back at the text now. There are four contrasting ideas here. Long ago versus now in these last days. That reveals the context of revelation. There are in many ways and in one way, which are the means of revelation. Many times and one time to our fathers and to us. Those are four contrasting ideas that you see in those first two verses. The Holy Spirit reveals seven ways that Jesus is supreme. He's the heir of all things through whom the whole world was created. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature. Number five, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Number six, he made purification for sins. Number seven, he's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Well, that's a lot to unpack in one sermon. So I'm not even going to try it. I'm going I'm to save those last seven ways in which Jesus is supreme for next week. This morning, we just want to focus on those four contrasting ideas for a few minutes. Those four contrasting ideas. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. This reveals that God does speak. God does speak. He's actively speaking. He's making himself known. And And just at the risk of losing everybody for the next few minutes, what if there was a colony of otters that you you know wanted to make yourself known to? It's kind of a weird thought, right? I couldn't think of a, a another animal, but but who knows that um, that otters don't have some sort of weird idea about humans right? Maybe some of them worship humans, maybe some of them uh, have pictures or sketches under the sea, or I don't know. But in some way, maybe there's this idea that, that this other creature wants to know about us in some way. And let's say that you're a benevolent person and that you want to make yourself known to these creatures, that you want them, you want to show your great love for them. How would you reveal yourself? How would you make yourself known in a way that wouldn't terrify them, in a way that they would understand well, you would do that in a way that, uh, that, that they could understand, that they would hear, that they would, you would speak their language. And in all those ways, God has done for thousands of years that for us. He's made himself known to us. He has spoken. He has sent people and prophets. I guess you could convince one of the otter guys to go and tell the other otter guys what you're like and if there was some way that that would happen. God has been doing that. For thousands of years, it says, he has been revealing himself long ago. Long ago is the context of Revelation. Why does the author here set the person of Jesus in the context of the very beginning? Why doesn't he just say in Bethlehem, Jesus was born? Or why doesn't he just describe Israel or, or Jerusalem where he died? Why does he set the context this, this big? Why? Because Jesus was there from the beginning, right? Because Jesus has been there. He's been with God and in God from the very beginning, as John 1 describes. The Holy Spirit is placing the story of Christ within the broader context of redemption. That Jesus is not just the latest prophet, but God is revealing himself through Jesus Christ And long ago, and in many ways, he did that. But now, in these last days, he's revealing himself perfectly through the person of Jesus. He says in many ways, he has revealed Jesus. Think about all the ways in the Old Testament in which God was revealing himself. Through prophets, priests, and kings, through farmers, and shepherds, and political leaders, and military leaders, they all had a piece of the story to tell, didn't they? They didn't tell the whole story. You think about... Adam and Eve, they had a piece of the story. God had to sacrifice an innocent animal to cover their shame and nakedness. You think about Noah. The ark became the vessel of salvation to shield them from the waters of judgment like Jesus is the vessel of salvation that took our judgment. Think about Abraham having to sacrifice his son, his only son in Genesis 22. Think about all these ways that Joseph suffered in Egypt and rises to power to save his family who rejected him, becoming a suffering servant and Savior, a type of Christ. Think about Moses being an intercessor and a redeemer, a mediator and a prophet. Ruth describes a kinsman redeemer, right? In all those ways, we see types and shadows of what was to come. Galatians 4 says, In the fullness of time, God sent His Son. You know that word in the fullness of time in the greek it's it's a word picture of when you pour water into a, a glass that moment where it's about to bubble over you can if you were looking at it level you could see it just starting to come over the top of the glass that's that greek word in the fullness of time at just the right moment with all the right conditions god sent the perfect witness and revelation of himself the exact imprint of his nature in Jesus. It wasn't anything like all those ways that he spoke before. So the warning for the Hebrew Christians was, why would you go back to a shadow? Why would you go back to an insufficient message when you have the fullest message right here in front of you? Why would you go back there when you have Jesus? He describes in all those ways, uh, the recipients of Revelation, the time of Revelation. You know, God opened up this message of the kingdom for us. So just in closing, the way in which we see this beautiful picture of God is that He makes Himself known. He's making Himself known. He made Himself known to them and He makes Himself known to us. God is a revealing God. He's not hiding from you somewhere. He wants you to know Him. You know, Matthew 7 says, seek, knock, and ask. For those who seek, find. Those who knock, the door will be opened. Those who ask, they will receive. God is willing and able and ready to make Himself known to you. He desires for you to have a relationship with Him. He is constantly making Himself known. You probably know Psalm 19.1, right? The heavens declare the... Yeah, that's right. The heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim His faithfulness. Romans one 18 through 18-23 describes the fact that, that God has made Himself known clearly through what has been revealed. It says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Listen closely in verse 19. What can be known about God is plain because God has made it plain to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and His divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in all the things that have been made so that all people are what? Without excuse. There will never be a human who will be able to stand before God and say I had no concept of you. God has revealed himself clearly in creation. He's revealed himself most clearly though through Jesus Christ and through scripture. And it has to be sufficient for us, right? It has to be sufficient. The scripture, Jesus, the Bible, it has to be enough for those of you who are believers. Now if you're not a believer, you're constantly searching You're constantly looking for something else to satisfy you. You're constantly moving to something else, to some new revelation or some new truth or some new philosophy or some new technique. It's exhausting watching people looking for satisfaction. Jesus is enough and God has revealed himself perfectly clearly through Jesus. God speaks. He speaks often. He speaks clearly. He speaks Personally, He speaks consistently, and He speaks best through His Word. He speaks most through His Word. The author of Hebrews is setting the supremacy of Jesus high, that we might clearly, clearly follow Him and love Him. This morning, if you've never met Christ, if you're searching for meaning and searching for purpose, you won't find a better Savior, another Savior, Hebrews, uh, Peter said, there is no other name by which salvation is found other than the name of Jesus. So this morning, if you have never met Christ, Jesus described it as a man who finds treasure in a field and he sells everything to buy that field. And this is the supremacy of Jesus. And this is what the author of Hebrews is trying to get across. You won't find a better Savior. You won't find another Savior other than Christ. So, Father, we are extremely grateful that You make Yourself known to Your people, that You make Yourself known in Christ Jesus and through Your Word. It's our humble prayer this morning that You would continue to make Yourself known to us and through us. As you, as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, that we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making His plea through us. It's our prayer that You would make Yourself known to those around us, through us, through your word, through your people, and through your church. Let us be a clear picture of redemption and grace and mercy. Father, I pray that people would see you in us, that they would see your great love in us and through us. Take your message, take your word this morning and use it to make us more like you. And we ask it in Jesus name. Amen.